HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Grape Nation is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines expertly curated for you. Go to wineaccess.com slash grapenation for more info. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Maggie Harrison. We'll talk to Maggie about wine in Oregon and Antica Terra. We'll taste some Pinot Noir for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Far from wine country, Maggie Harrison was born in the Midwest, eventually pursuing a career in international relations and conflict resolution. Well, that didn't last long. Maggie made her way out west to follow her interest in wine. She landed a job with quirky and legendary Sinaquanon winemaker Manfred Cronkle as his assistant for eight years. Along the way, she started her own small label, Lillian, specializing in Syrah, before a group of friends asked her to look at their property in the Aeola Amity Hills of Oregon. Maggie fell in love with the property, joined them, and is now the co-owner, winemaker at Antica Terra, making sublime Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Maggie Harrison. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. Um, we are talking to Maggie remotely via Zencaster. 
Maggie, where are you right now? Um, well, I'm in my house in Portland, Oregon, about half an hour away from the winery. And that's where you live? You travel back and forth to the winery? Yeah, I live in Portland and I drive to the winery or the vineyard every day. Okay, that sounds pretty nice. All right, Maggie, let's give everyone a little insight into who you are. Give me a little background on your journey in life and wine that ultimately got you to Oregon and the winery. Tell me how this all came about. I mean, Sam, that's a really long story. I'm going to try. Just you, give you me know. the timeline. You know line. already. I'm not, I'm not the best at giving concise answers. I can't even believe you invited me to we'll do this. We'll get to the heavy stuff later on. But just, you know, you, you, you came from the Mideast to Syracuse. <laughs> Move me along quickly. You're you? so good at it. Okay, so I'm from Chicago, and I went to Syracuse, and I studied, uh, well, I got a degree in peace and conflict resolution, which I know sounds like a joke, but that really was a degree. And so I, when I was in university, I had worked with President Carter, and so he offered me a job um, when I was done with school to join him at the Carter Center in Atlanta, and I said yes. Um, but before I took that job, I had already accepted a fellowship to go do some studying in Scandinavia, to go live in Denmark. So I went to Denmark, and then once I got on the plane and I went to Europe, I decided that there was too much of the rest of the world that I hadn't seen yet. And so I just, it felt it felt very much like everything was going to get really big, really fast. I was going to have a job and a career. I didn't even know what that really meant. I was going to buy a car. I might get a dog. I don't know. And uh, I was never going to see anything. And so I asked um, the, my, my supervisor and President Carter at the Carter Center if I could if I could take take a gap year, if I could go travel somewhere. And they said, sure. And then once I started traveling, I, I couldn't stop. And so um, I, would, I spent a year in Europe. I went back to Europe and spent a year in Europe. And then I spent a year in South America. And then I spent a year in Africa. And in between each one, I would go back to Chicago, where I'm from, and I would just work in a restaurant because it was the easiest way to stuff my pockets with a bunch of tip, tip money. And then at the end of the year, I would have, you know, ten or $12,000 and I would buy a one-way ticket and a bunch of inoculations and, and a new tent and get on a plane. And so I, I did this for a while. Um, well, did you actually, travel was, much before this time? Yeah. I mean, I traveled with my family, um, you know, I... I, um, but I hadn't, you know, traveled like this backpack on the back by myself, go someplace with a one way ticket and just travel until, until I came home again, not sort of a, you know, a, a journey of a year at a time. And, um, you know, every time I came back from a trip, I had to call the Carter and center and say, okay, I'm back, but I'm not ready to start this job yet. And the more times I did that, the more it became apparent that there was a chance I really might never go. I really might, I really might never take that job. And so when, when that became real, like I could no longer avoid that that might be the answer. And I thought about, well, if you are not taking that job, what are you going to do? Right. I, mean, I was a, I was a, I had a very expensive education, a backpack and was a, a waitress. And um, it didn't, that it wasn't, that wasn't, it was a, that was a fairly complex geometry to figure out what I was going to do next. And so, um, you know, I was actually, I was sitting in this bar, um, uh, this, there's an island off the coast of Kenya called Lamu. And uh, it's actually, well, it was then, I don't know if it is now, it was a dry island, but there was one sort of black market bar where you could get a beer. I found it. And so I was sitting uh, in this bar and I was sitting next to a stranger and we were talking 
And he asked me what I did. And instead of telling him that I was a conflict resolution specialist, I burst into tears and said, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, And so after I complained to him and cried for a half an hour and told him, I can't go back to Chicago and my boyfriend's waiting for me and President Carter and the thing and then this and my education, he finally got so mad at me that he slammed down his beer and he said, oh my God, sister, seriously, you've just told me everything you can't do, don't want to do, impossible to do. And he said, what do you want to do? And, and it was really, I mean, I know it all sounds like myth building, but really in that moment when I had to think, well, what is it you want to do with your backpack and your waitressing career? The one thing that I'd gotten really interested in while I was working in restaurants was, was wine. And, and I really just, I, I started learning about wine because it was the easiest way to upsell, to make more tips so I could get on a plane faster. Um, but the more I learned, the more I got to drink things, the more I, you know, everybody knows it's a, it's a, you know, it's like learning about art or literature or, right. you know, it's a very, uh, a burgeoning. Complex. Yeah. And so, um, the, the more I learned, the more I loved it. And when he asked me that question outright, um, I said, I think I want to learn how to make wine. And he said, fine. <laughs> Are there grapes in your country? And I said, Yeah. He said, great, finish your stupid beer and finish your dumb trip through Africa and go home and learn how to make wine. Stop talking. Um, and so and so I did just that. And without making this story very, very long, I got very, very, very lucky. And um, even though I had never, ever set foot in a winery, I'd never even been in a tasting room, uh, I was... was I got to be the assistant winemaker, um, as you said, with Elena Manfred-Krenkel at Sinequanon. Um, and they, they had to teach me everything. I, I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know what anything was. And they taught me everything and let me work there. I was their, their first employee and the only employee for the first bunch of years that I worked there. Um, that that and then, part of the story is amazing on its own. It's I mean, just, ridiculous. It's absurd. You know, just because, you know, who he is, what he's done, his wines, you know, and the fact that it was really uh, just him and his wife. And then he brings you in. I mean, that that's crazy. So you spent eight years with him. Yeah, I spent eight years and I would have stayed there for 800 years. I was never, ever going to leave. Right. I, I have a friend who used to cook at Chez Panisse and um, and everyone used to ask her all the time what she was going to do next. And she said, this is I, why would I leave? I'm learning something every day. I'm working for my hero. It's amazing. I love it. Why, why? It's not broken. Why would I ever fix it? And I felt very much the same way about working for Elena Manfred. I had I did not want to leave. I mean, I, I had no plans on leaving. I had no designs. I didn't want to make my own wine. And they really, they really talked me into it. They, they very much sort of baby birded me out of the nest. And, um, and it took some convincing because, uh, I, I had still felt like I had so much to learn from them, but ultimately, you know, they said, look, we didn't give you everything that we know. They told me I could work there forever. They would never fire me. I could work there until I was 95. It was a perfect marriage for them. It was, it was great, but that, you know, I had hit a ceiling and I was the assistant winemaker. They were the winemakers. They weren't going anywhere. So there was no place for me to advance to. And I said, I'm perfectly comfortable. I'll be an assistant forever. And they, they just said, you can't. And they said, look, we didn't give you everything so that you could give it back to us. That's like a, a weird Mobius strip of, of selfishness. And, you know, you're smart. We didn't hire you because you're a dummy. You can, you can do this. And neither of those were convincing. And then finally they said, look, you don't want to be 60 years old and wonder what you could have done. And, and I, that, that, that one got me. Um, and so, so that night I took a, a bottle of, of Snequin on home and, and my now husband, then boyfriend, and I went out for, for 
burgers. And I, I told him he had to be perfect attention to that wine because we weren't going to make that wine and we weren't going to make Grenache, which I do now, uh, but that I, I wanted to make wine that carried that same level of emotionality. I wanted, I, I wanted to make wine that could make people cry. Sorry. I know that sounds very uh, uncharitable. Um, and so we did, we got to make the first two vintages of Lillian at the Sinequinon winery in their, in their little garage in Ventura. And then in 2006, I got offered the opportunity. Well, you know, I got offered the opportunity to come take a look at the Antiquaterra property. Um, and then I got, and then I got suckered in. And so I moved here in 2006 to also make Pinot Noir here. Um, and you've been there since. And I've been here since. So tell me, pretty good story. Um, tell me, I'm just very curious. This is sort of the question of the last six, eight, ten months. How, is, how has life been during the pandemic? I mean, how has it affected you, your family, you know, you and the winery? Yeah, I mean, I mean is... it's such a, it's a, it's a huge question. And I, I think if I were a smarter person, I would come prepared to answer it. I, I think, I mean, we're all fine. Um, my family is healthy and we're safe. Um, I have a job that I love. My husband has a job that he loves. I've been able to keep my entire team intact at the winery. And so my family and the, the 10 family, 11 families that our business supports are, are, are good. Um, we're, we're strong. And, um, you know, it has been there has been un unnameable pain uh, in this year. And it has, we've all been through similar ringers, some of us, uh, some of us much, much, much worse than others. Um, you know, the only person actually cl close to me um, who did get COVID is a, a miracle of nature. My, my dad is 83, has every pre-existing health condition, is in assisted living. Um, and, uh, and got COVID and, um, it's fine. He, he, uh, yeah, he's, it's, it's amazing. And so I, there, there is a lot to say about, about the, the pain and the grief and, and things that, that broke in the past year. Um, but I, I can also say that we, we've, I really needed this year in in one particular way, um, and that is that I, I needed this pocket of stillness, and it, and it wasn't allowed to be still. I, I needed some space to think and give myself some some real space to to think of how to be agile and what agility and what the double helix of of agility and beauty meant. Right, I think that. You know, I've heard from people that they have pivot fatigue, right? That that when when you had to sort of write down everything you knew about your business in March of last year and then tear it up and start again, there's been this incredible sort of pivoting from one place to the next. Um, I haven't felt that way because we built a business based really on on only one thing, which is for, it's the most beautiful. Whatever's the most beautiful answer of what's in front of us, we're going to do that, and so. It really acted as North Star, but what it gave us the opportunity to do was really just um, execute at a with much greater velocity than we have in in the last decade. It's sort of fast forwarded um, whatever our whatever our strategy was for where we wanted to get next. 
we, we got to do all of those things all at once, just because I wasn't on a plane every other week going to a different market. Um, you know, other Ingrid and, and Colin weren't on planes every week. We weren't hosting guests at the winery as much as we usually would. And so all of these additive layers of beauty that are usually in front of us, unfortunately got, got lifted and, and taken away um, for a time. But what it gave us was time to be together in a very different way and be really creative about, about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to act in our community and what deepening the relationship with our, with our membership really looked like. And um, it's, there's no way to talk about it that doesn't seem tone deaf. Um, I needed to give, I, I feel very, I am filled with gratitude that I got the space that we were able to, to, to pull the business through and to fortify the business um, and to work with my, my scrappy little team of magic makers um, to, to really actually do the things that we've been talking about for a lot of years. And so we're, I feel, um, strange. I, somebody's going to come back and complain about this. I feel really energized. Um, I, I don't I think am, you're, I don't think you're alone. I think, you know, I, you didn't mention it, but I'm positive that you spent time with your family like you never have, you know, with the kids, with your husband solving their problems, um, you know, and all of that. I, I think people have gone through, you know, gone through this in many different ways. I mean, you know, I don't, I think it's very fair, you know, what you said and, and, you know, what you were able to do with the time. So yeah, I think that there were fires, both literal, literal and and figurative that we could not, could not put out. And, uh, and then also there was just some, uh, imaginative and and creative fuel, um, that, that got poured on this year. Um, and, and I feel, I feel really grateful. I am still in a position to capitalize on that energy and, and make something out of it because there is a lot of making to do. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you to tell me a little about, you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't let you go without talking about Manfred a little. Um, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but you know, we talked a little about the influence he had on you. I mean, he let you and pushed you go your own way. Um, I mean, did you, he's a guy like you that didn't have any formal training. Um, you know, so I'm curious, what did you learn? You know, how did you learn? Did you have to figure stuff out on your own when you left him? I mean, that's a very unique situation Two people making wine that, you know, didn't have that formal training. Right. It's like the shags and your wines and his wines are brilliant. I mean, you know, that, that's the funny thing. Yeah. I have one of his wines sitting right in front of me on the table, actually. Uh, um, uh, look, Elena Manfred gave me everything. Um, I, I tried to be very careful and judicious about, about not using their name to ever promote my work because they already gave me everything. They, you know, uh, and I probably wouldn't have made my, I mean, when I, when I walked in the door, I, I finally got to have an, an interview, which was the dumbest interview of all time because I was so 
nervous that my um that my honestly my my neck muscles closed around my throat and I couldn't speak for like the first 90 minutes they took me on this whole tasting through the cellar and I, I they knew I wasn't a mute because we had spoken on the phone before but I couldn't speak at all not I couldn't make anything come out uh, across my vocal cords at all and finally after honestly a really long time like 48 minutes of of tasting through the cellar they put this wine in my glass and I looked at them and I said one word, which was wow. And they just looked at each other. <laughs> what is happening? Uh, it was, and one of the questions that, that Manfred asked me in that interview is he said, you know, what, what's your end game? What, what do you want? What do you want to do? You want to, you want to make your own wine one day? And I said, I, I don't know. I have no, I have no idea. I might suck at this. Sorry. Am I allowed to say that? I might be yeah. terrible at this. Right. Like I, I have no idea. And, uh, you really had no it. idea. No, I'd never been in a wine. I'd never, I'd never, I'd never been on that side of it at all. And, and honestly, um, had I worked for somebody else, I, I probably wouldn't have made wine. Right. It just happened to be what Elaine and Manfred were incredibly generous with me and also gave me all of this space and all of this trust right off the bat. And um, if it was if it was a technical winemaker and there was a way that things were done, right? We do it this way and then we then we add this to get it to this metric, I probably wouldn't have liked it. I wouldn't I wouldn't have stayed. Um, but the way that Elaine and Manfred make wine and the way they think about living a life and creating beauty and the relationship that they had with their with their clients and their members was breathtaking to me. And so it was, you know, it, it was very much like you said, I, you know, they wouldn't have hired somebody who had gone to school for winemaking or at that time who had worked at another winery. Now, lots of people have worked there um, and they have different levels of experience. But when I was there, you know, when, when they were hiring me, which, you know, remember, it was before the internet. I'm, I'm really old. It was before the internet. And so it wasn't like there was even a community. There was no way to, to find somebody to come work for you. What, what were they going to do? Put an ad in the back of the LA, you know, the, the, the LA times. And so, uh, and so. The funny thing is it, it plays well because he doesn't give a crap about the internet anyway. No, he does not give a crap. He doesn't about care about internet. social media. You know, he could sell his wine through, you know, a mailing list. It's just ironic. He could live in that bubble and succeed. It's exactly right. And look, I was a terrible student, right? I, I you know, I, I ba- barely graduated from college. I, uh, there was mu- much more pitchers of beer and, and tabs of acid than, than there was time in school. And so if, had I worked for someone where there were a bunch of technical things to learn and a lot of conversation of the, about science, uh, I just wouldn't have resonated with me. It's not, it's not what I loved about wine, but um, everything that I loved about wine was reflected back in, you know, in multitudes by being in a room with Elaine and Manfred. And, and um, you know, what they, what they said to me when I got there was, you don't have to know anything. We'll, we'll teach you everything, you know, we want you to do. We want you to do it exactly the way that we want you to do it. And um, we, we just need you to work hard. And, and that's the part that I, I think I really didn't, I just hadn't recognized was in me um, until until they gave it space, right? So I I thought that they gave me that part of myself, this part that you know 
this perfectionist with this maniacal rigor. You choose the one thing and then you do it no matter what it takes, except, you know, on the other side of working there and now, you know, at being this age, I look back at, at things that I did before I knew them. And, um, it was, it was, you know, I was, a well, I was incredibly rigorous about my work, but there's just not a lot of, you know, I didn't make a lot of room for that in any environment, in a, in a restaurant or in college, um, or in my work in conflict resolution. And they just, um, they gave that fire a lot of, of oxygen. And so it felt, um, it felt amazing to work there. And the only rule, right. You know, that people would come all the time. Well, all the time, we didn't let very many people visit because we were working, but once in a while, somebody would come visit and they would ask all these questions about, you know, Oh, where did you get that drawer that you keep your bungs in? And what, what shoes does Manfred wear? And all these things. And the reality <laughs> was, is that Manfred was so incredible. Both Elaine and Manfred were incredibly open and incredibly generous with the way they thought about winemaking, how they made decisions, how they felt, how they farm. Um, but everyone was always looking for the secret. What was, what was the one thing that they could learn when they walk in? And, and the one thing that they could have taken away, um, nobody ever paid attention to which was that the work matters, right? It, it, it's, it's all in the details. And if you're going to take your eye off the details and cut a corner here or cut a corner there, or compromise here, and people think they don't, people think that they are not compromising. It's all in the name of, of handcraftedness. But the, the real secret that they- That's the maniacal rigor. That, yeah, it's all in the work. It's craftsmanship matters and values matter. And if you can marry those things and you stay true, right? For me, it is that we have to make the most beautiful choice for, for them. So take that forward with me. Um, because I would say that you have an unconventional philosophy to farming and winemaking. I mean, you pick and you ferment fruit differently. Uh, you're famous for blending blind or you blend by blind tasting. And, you know, even though wine is an annual thing, a lot of wines and wineries try to make the same thing every year. You know, the possibilities change every year and you recognize that. So talk a little about, you know, your philosophies in farming and the things that you do that you know are different um, and that really make the wine you know, unique and terrific. I mean, I, that's very nice for you. I think you're the first person that's ever called me famous. <laughs> and thank you for calling anything I do terrific. Hey, you're famous to me. <laughs> Excellent. Me and you, Sam. Uh, I honestly, I'm not smart enough to do it another way, right? I can't there. I can't hold a synthesis of enough information in my body to be able to make decisions about whatever farming. Is that the science clean. you're referring to? It, just even science or even what happened before. I mean, sometimes right. I'm with other winemakers and they can say, ah, we saw something like this in 1994. And what I did then is I just added more sulfur in my pre you know, I honestly, when I sit down to write my release letters and I have to talk about a vintage that happened two years ago, you know, the things that I remember have nothing to do with that. I don't, I, I don't carry that sort of information. I mean, I, I, honestly, I'm like a magpie. I'm like a, I'm the world's greatest <laughs> dilettante. I know a little tiny, shiny thing about everything. And so the, it's, you know, maybe 
if I had a lot of tools, um, right. And, and I knew all of this stuff and I had been to school and I understood, you know, why grape skins thickened and then what it did. And I'm like, maybe I would make different decisions. I don't, it's just not the way I'm built. And so all I have to carry into it is what sounds good. <laughs> it's not, it's not so different from going to a restaurant and looking at a menu or what, like what's, what sounds good. What, what's going to feel best right now. And it's in front of you. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, the way that that ends up being different and if we, you know, I, and I'm not entirely sure that it is, is that, you know, instead of saying, well, we're going to take this block down to two tons the acre, you know, we, when, what Elena Manfred taught me is, you know, for example, with pruning is that there needs to be enough space between each cluster for a hummingbird to fly through. Right. And so on some vines, that means I'm going to drop three clusters. And on some, it means I might drop 13. That's not a calculation other than standing and looking at the thing in front, in this case, a vine, standing and looking at the one thing in front of you and saying, what's the, what's the nicest, what, what looks good? What looks good? And then you do that thing for that thing in front of you. And then you move to the next and you just trust that if you're always staying with <laughs> what looks good, then you're, you can't end up in a, in a bad place and you might not know where you're headed, but it's, if you just connect, right, you just string together this good feeling and this good work with the next and the next and the next that you're, you're going to end up with, you know, the best feeling version of what was possible in those fields and you're building in your hands in that year. And so that is, you know, that's how the, the blending blind came about. I mean, for, for a, a couple of big reasons, one. Explain, I, I, what does it mean? I mean, just, you know, yeah, walk and me so, through it. Yeah. The, the way that I learned how to make wine, and I won't make this long story, the way I learned how to make wine, it breeds a huge amount of diversity in the cellar. And I can say that because diversity is not qualitative, right? Diversity is, is qualitative when we're talking about nature, right? Biodiversity is, is incredibly important. Diversity in a cellar is not qualitative. If you have 20 barrels and they, are, they all have the exact same wine in them, they're the exact same barrel, and the wine is superlative, you, you just won. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Good is good is good. It's just that the way that Elena Mamper taught me how to make wine, when you don't have sort of an overarching idea of where you're headed or where you want to go, or you're trying to get your wines to do what you want them to do, right? If you're just meeting the wines where they are and then following them to what looks like the best solution, you end up with this sort of tessellation pattern across your cellar things become very different from one another in a very fractalized sort of way and so you know if you and i were in the cellar together today i could i could do what everyone does and we could dip a thief into into different barrels and i could show you you know here's seven springs vineyard versus hopewell vineyard here's hopewell versus cherry grove or i could just take you through you know the the 15 different blocks in at the Antiquaterra vineyard but i could also just take you through you know the 17 barrels that came from a single block picked on a single day and and each barrel is really wildly different from from the one next to it all 17 are different from one another it's very much like uh you know a, a cellar full of fraternal twins everything is related by dna and then completely different right Un unrecognizable as siblings and so I think you're, you are left conventionally with sort of two choices when you, when you go to put your wines into bottle. You can say, okay, now I'm going to look at all of this diversity and I'm going to take my very favorite barrels, 
right? And I'm going to take those and I'm going to put them together and I'm going to call that my reserve bottling. I'm going to charge a lot of money. And then I'm going to take my next favorite barrels and that's, there's probably going to be more of them even. I'm going to take all those and I'm going to put them together and I'm going to call it my flagship bottling. And then I'm going to take everything that's left over and I'm going to, I'm going to put it in something together and call it my, my entry level bottling or, you know, I'm going to use it for buy the glass. And ultimately I just don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't understand that concept really only because I only want to make a reserve level thing. I don't, if somebody in my, in the winery, if I ask them to, to make a report for me, I've, I've never done that, but say I did, I say, go, go make a report. And somebody brought it back and said, Hey, here's my flagship report. I can make a better one, but I'm not going to give that to you. Here, here's, here's my medium grade for it. Like, I don't know why we would let winemakers talk to us in that way or, or uh, allow for that sort of optionality. And so that, that didn't really feel good. And then the other way is to say, is to say, okay, I work with 10 vineyards. And so we're going to make 10 bottles of wine. And look, that is a, a very sacred process, right? I, I understand that each place speaks with its own voice. It is absolutely true. In our cellar, right? We, all of those places are kept separate with intense granularity, right? Every, every, the, this side of the vine and that on the top of the on the bottom and this, everything is separate. And yet I wouldn't just put them together in a bottle just as an intellectual exercise. The separation is only of interest if it creates the thing of, of, I shouldn't keep using this word, the thing that's most delicious, most clear, most whole, right? That tells the clearest story. And so instead we, we blend all the wines blind. And, and by that, right, what we do is we take a sample from every single barrel of, I don't know, in this example, Pinot Noir in the cellar. And we put them in numbered sample bottles and we put them all down a table or more likely in, in boxes next to the table. And then we just move through them. And so on the first day, there are three of us at the table, um, one, of, one of whom you're going to talk to later this month. Uh, we just move through and um, we, we taste each one and write notes on, on each barrel just by the numbers. And then over the next nine days, we do it in, in three day blocks for about eight to 10 hours a day. We just put things together and take them apart and put them together and take them apart and put it in every different way we can think of until we find the place where the wines feel lovely, where they where we can't make them any better anymore. And so the thing is, Sam, right, it's only at the end of this whole process that we have the reveal, right? Like where we lift the curtain and see what was in those barrels. So, you know, I could be looking, I, I'll, I'll have a, you know, a laptop screen in front of me or a piece of paper in front of me and it'll say Botanica. And then under Botanical, just have a long list of numbers that, that refer to all these bottles, number six, number 17, number 132, number 45. And when, and then, you know, oftentimes next to those numbers, there will be a second number, which is what percentage or how many liters from that, from that barrel we're using. And it's only when we're done that we then look and see, okay, what's Botanica made of? And that's when we can match up what was in those numbered bottles to, to where that wine came from. So that's the moment that I find out what the alcohol percentage is, what the new oak contribution was, what the whole cluster inclusion was, and what the cepage is, right? So there's always the possibility, and in fact it happens, that I can look and say, oh my gosh, look at that. Botanica is 100% from the Hopewell Vineyard. Great. 
and I am deeply devoted to Hopewell Vineyard. And yet I'm still not going to make a bottle that says Hopewell on it just for the sake of carrying its name. If it's going to rise into a bottle by itself, it has to be because it proved out through blind tasting that it was the most beautiful thing that was possible. And I think, wait, can I keep talking about this for a minute? I mean, the thing I, I, one of the thing, one of the reasons I wish, not because I, I wish there were fewer vineyard designated wines in the world or fewer flagship wines in the world, but the, the only reason I wish more people did make their selections in this way is because we're a really young community. I, I mean, I am, I am, I am not young, but we're, we're only in our first or second generation of winemakers in this country. And so I feel like we're squandering the opportunity to just see where the value is, right? See the things that actually deserve to stand alone. What aspect, what orientation, what plant material. And I think we have this intense pressure um, as a, as a, as a younger wine growing region to sort of ape an archetypal ideal. We have to make what we do here look like Burgundy, not just in winemaking or the way we talk about the wines, but also a smaller place has more value than the bigger place. The, you know, that place has more value than the even bigger place. And so we draw these lines around things um, and, and decide that this, this sense of place and specificity um, is the most important thing has the highest value. And yet when I, when I look at places like, like Burgundy, right. I mean, it took 180, 300, 500 years in some of these places to draw those lines. And, and oftentimes those lines were drawn for political reasons. It's not necessarily because, you know, those lines were better than that. And I think by not doing the work, by not taking the time, by not just allowing ourselves the vulnerability of seeing, um, and just being allowed to see that we squander the opportunity to give to whoever comes next, to give to the next generation, a clearer story to, for us to be able to learn more than we were given when we, when we, when we helped, when we were given the reins. Right. Does that make sense? Um, it makes total sense. Um, we have to take a break. Um, but I had a quick question before we break. And then when we come back, I want to talk to you specifically about some of the wines. Then I want to subject you to our wine list. And then I want to talk about uh, the wine in front of me. Um, so a quick question before we break. So the process that you go through resets and starts all over the following vintage, right? I mean, maybe in your mind, you know, there's notes and remembrances, but, you know, you, you rescue everything, right? I mean, it's blind again, and the Botanica may not be any Hopewell, right? Potentially. That's exactly Crazy. I mean, kind of, and then I don't, I, I can't really figure out how people do it any other way. Well, well our blending sessions are, are kind of grueling. I mean, just, just putting that many wines, you know, into it, your body over the course of a day is hard. But if I had to try to figure out, I mean, look, we have this huge amount of vintage variation in Oregon and okay, less so in, you know, 15, 16, 17, but every other vintage, right? It, for the warmest, the coldest, the wettest, the driest, the latest, the early, it's a, it's a really big span um, between those two poles. And if I had to make, 
a, you know, a 2012, try to taste like an 11. If I had to take a, you know, a whatever, a 13 and make it, or a 14 and make it taste like a 13, those, the, the things that you have to do as a winemaker are, are quite brutalistic. I mean, that, that is a brutal process to try to take, you know, it's like taking somebody who was born left-handed and trying to make them right with it. I mean, I hand. like the way you do it. It's, you know, I mean, it's a very natural thing. All right, Maggie, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Maggie Harrison. Maggie Harrison is the winemaker and one of the owners at Antica Terra, Antica Terra in, uh, the Ole Amity Hills in Dundee, Oregon. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Grape Nation. want to talk to you about wine access you know i like to enlighten inspire and motivate you to try and drink more wine whether you're new to wine or a pro wine access makes it easy for everyone to learn about and buy wines wine access will help you choose the right bottle whether you're looking to spend a few bucks or splurge on that special wine let the psalms master psalms and masters of wine at wine access sort through everything it's all about the curation these guys taste over 20,000 wines per year, and they only select the finest wines, exceeding expectations, and over-delivering on price. They equip you with the knowledge and stories behind each bottle, taking the guesswork out of choosing that great bottle. Discover your new favorite bottles with wine access, and ask about their wine club too. They have an exclusive offer available just for the Grape Nation listeners. 20% off your first order. That's even better than a case discount at most places. Just go to the special URL, wineaccess.com slash Grape Nation, and the discount will be applied at checkout. That's wineaccess.com slash Grape Nation. We're back. We're back with my guest, Maggie Harrison. Maggie, the winemaker and co-owner at Antica Terra. Um, let's talk a little about your wines. Um, I think one of the prevailing themes about your wines and the labels um, really has to do a lot with the area and the soils, you know, that these vines and plants grow in your you your little part of the world is kind of a unique place i mean explain that a little <laughs> i mean though i'm a I little probably, yeah <laughs> i am that's going to be hard for you <laughs> uh i I am probably the worst person to speak about the willamette valley at large as uh Except I didn't ask you that. I asked you, great. you know. Oh, just my vineyard? You have this very, you have this. I thought you were going to, I thought I was giving geology class. No, no, no. I, I was going to ask you that. And then I realized uh, not to. That I'm a person who holds no information in my head. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I didn't mean that, but you have a unique, you know, plot. Um, <laughs> 
you know, with small berries and they really have to, you know, dig in, you know, I can tell, tell you me. All about I got that. Yeah. Quickly, though. Um, I will, though. I, quickly. I got it. I will, though, say that the Willamette Valley is the greatest place to make wine. It is the most incredible community. Even though I am their worst spokesperson, I will say that um, the the community of winemakers here is the the, the best. Uh, this little vineyard, the one that tricked me into moving to the one moving to Oregon altogether, it, it's true. It's a little bit of a geological anomaly. And and ultimately, right, if I was if I was more articulate in speaking about the geology of this place as a whole, you know, all of Oregon was 40 million years ago under the Pacific Ocean. And then it it rose in these sort of diagonal lines. So wherever you're standing in the state of Oregon, no matter where you are, if you dig deeply enough, you will get down to this parent rock. And that parent rock um, is this very, very, very compressed marine material from, from, you know, it is prehistoric ocean floor. And if you break open that rock, it is all sown with bright white marine fossils, all, um, you know, clams and oysters that are 40 million years old. It's very, it's very beautiful. And so what at the Antica Terra vineyard, you know, just the way that it was formed geologically, if you look at the, the Willamette Valley, you know, the Yola Amity Hills typically has the shallower soils than some of the other sub-AVAs, but even then, you typically have to dig about you know, 35 to 90 inches to get down to this parent rock. And parent rock, again, is not qualitative, it's not better than having deep joy soils or, or any other soil, it's just down there somewhere. But the way Antiquitera was formed geologically, there's just no younger geological material. So the, the vines were planted you know, there's there's zero to 16 inches of any soil on top of this solid sheet of rock. And and what's different there is, you know, we've all or many of us have been to rocky vineyards. If you go to the, you know, the rocks district of Milton, Milton Free Water or Chateauneuf or things, it's cobbles, right? The, you walk and it, there's, there's no soil at all. It's just these fist-sized rocks all next to each other. And what you have there is this incredible space for roots to descend into into the earth, right? I mean, there are, you know, when you put two rocks together, there are gaps between them and, and plants can grow down into them. This is much more like trying to plant a vine on top of a concrete floor, right? It's just this solid sheet of parent rock. And so, yeah, as such, um, it they, they just had to, they had to work really hard and there just wasn't a lot of there, there just wasn't a lot of, of energy. And so it's not that the vines still sit on top of this cement floor, right? They found cracks and fissures and places where they could get through and reach water and, and things, but they're just stunted, right? It gave rise to vines that are much, much smaller than a typical Pinot Noir vine. And it's very much like a, a, a bonsai, right? You can make a bonsai grapevine and it will make teeny tiny little clusters. And the reason a bonsai doesn't grow larger is because you've restricted the space for the roots. And so since there is no room underground for the roots to expand, so it doesn't allow the vine to expand above ground. And so everything about the vines is diminutive, right? The leaves are about half the size of normal Pinot Noir leaves. The vines are about a half to a third the size of Pinot Noir. I mean, the, the clusters are a half to a third. The berries are tiny. In about a third of the berries, they don't even produce a seed. It's called Parthenocarpi. And it's because the, the vine has been under so much stress for the whole of its life that it it's not even positive. It has enough energy to ripen and it's hold well, its whole job is to is it thinks is to reproduce. And so it spares the energy of making a seed just so it can get all of the fruit ripe enough 
to be attracted. Does it create more intensity? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then on top of that, so we have these tiny clusters, these tiny berries, right? And then we are on the western side of the Eola Amity Hills. And so it is called Eola, right, from the wind, because it's a very windy place. There is this marine inversion, and the wind comes in from the sea across the Van Duzer Corridor, right? But you know, most of the vineyards in the Olam Hills are on the eastern side, so there's a, a buffering effect as the wind sort of comes to the hills and then curls around the other side. We're on the western side, and so it's very much like if you're if you're standing outside in the cold and in the wind, you put on a heavier jacket, and and our, our grapes do the exact same thing, right? Because they are in this colder place and they're being buffeted by the wind at night, they grow incredibly thick skins, and so the result wine from the Antigua Terra vineyard is really unlike anything else we work with. And again, I'm not saying it's better than anything else. It just, you know, it has this architecture and these sort of Barolo-like tannins and this intensity. I mean, this sort of non-fruit chisel and cut and this sort of monstrous kind of intensity I might want, right? I, If I was a different kind of winemaker and I said, I make wines that are pale, fair, and ethereal, and lithe, and lifted. Those things sound beautiful to me. That is not what Pinot Noir in, from that vineyard in my is is ever going to do, right? It is a right. It is a very interesting. muscular, architectural sort of expression of Pinot Noir. So you make a handful of Pinots, you make a rosé, you make Chardonnay. You make stuff every year and then you do some bottlings, you know, and it sounds right. Based on our discussion about the blending, you know, how do you determine what is an Antikythera or a Ceres or a Botanica? I'm just curious now with your, you know, uh, blending process, how does that come about? Yeah, it's a great question. And so... The first thing we do at the blending table, first is we taste a composite of all of the Pinot Noir all together, just to try to understand the character of that vintage overall, and, and really just to get a sense of how much is in there that we hate, right? Like, just, <laughs> how good is it already? And the answer is, you know, usually you can just feel like, oh, there, there are some, there are some rotten apples in there that we got to, we got to, we got to find and drop out. But then the very next thing we do is we just take all of the barrels that came from the Antigua Terra vineyard and put them on the table by themselves. So, you know, I might have 24, 28, 30 different, 30 different picking lots from Antigua Terra, and then they divide into all these different barrels. So we put those on the table. And so on the, on the first day of blending, I know what's in front of me is only from my own vineyard. And we work there to see if any, or, or, you know, any, any, part of any of the barrels comes together in a way that is whole and complete and clear on its own. And if they do, then I bottle something called Antikythera. Um, if they don't, if there's nothing there that I think is great, um, then, then we, we won't make a wine. And so I've, so that's Antikythera. And then once we found that, we take those Wait, bottles off Would you off say the table. that's your estate? That's sort of the estate vineyard? Yeah, that is the, the only vineyard that I own. That's the, the only vineyard that we own. And then once we find that wine, then we take all of the other bottles from the whole rest of the cellar, put them back on the table, and then and then start at it again. And so Saris and Botanica, all they are 
All right, you know, when we have all of these bottles on the table, you can see there's this atlas of expression. There's this huge range. And we know this from drinking Pinot Noir anywhere, right? It goes from pale, fair, ethereal, you know, all the way through to sort of stacked and grippy and sappy and 16 different versions in between. And they're, they're, all, they're all lovely. And so we can see on the table in front of us this whole, you know, expanse of, of expression. And to make Saras and Botanica, all we're doing is turning our attention towards the two ends of the range of the spectrum, right? Wherever, whatever we see in that year, if it goes from light to dark or from blue to red or, you know, mineral and delicate to, to you know, sappy and dripping, I make, I make one mineral and delicate and one sappy and dripping. And we, we sort of find the natural point of bifurcation um, in the in this atlas of expression that's in front of us and unzip it and make two wines facing towards the two poles. Right. So the Ceres is the minerality-based one and the Botanica is a little sappy and sanguine. Yeah, right? that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, two more questions and then I want to subject you to our wine list. Um, I'm scared. The shards that you make Oregon is a good place to make shards, let's say, versus a Napa. Why? I mean, stylistically, it plays to what you like. I um, mean, the... I, I would make Chardonnay and Napa, too. I, I, again, right, I think... It, but can, I, with the climates and all that, can you make the same? No, it wouldn't be the same, but I think you can make something beautiful. I don't, I don't really... I mean, so... I love making I love making Chardonnay altogether. I love making white wine, and I love making Chardonnay in Oregon. And, and the reason I love making Chardonnay in Oregon is because typically the weather doesn't, you know, it doesn't force our hand. Meaning, there is this. I won't be long about this. I swear. But you know, when we say things like, "Oh, it's so much nicer to make wine in, in you know, Chardonnay in Oregon than it is say in Napa," it's because in Napa, there, you know, where the sun shines reliably. Things can get very rich very quickly, and so that's if what they're famous is, for. Yeah, so if richness is something that you don't like, it's very hard to avoid richness. Um, what is exciting for me in Oregon is that I am not afraid of richness. I mean, if I look at some of my, you know, the greatest Chardonnays I, I've drunk in the world, they're they're not small or shy or hesitant wines. Even when we talk about the greatest wines from from Burgundy, right? Ravenel is not a is not a pinched or thin wine, nor is Koch, right? These are these are massive, powerful wines. And so what I love about making Chardonnay in Oregon is that we can really lean into that without the risk that things are going to fall over the edge, that they're going to get too oily, too blousy, too flat, too dull, um, because it is just simply colder here. And so we get this much longer season. We can, we, I mean, the season is shorter, but we are allowed to let the fruit hang out there longer um, and really develop flavor in a different way. And I find, I find that really exciting. Yeah. Um, I'm anxious to try the shard. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, and I just want you to address it, is uh, vineyard practices, um, sustainability, organics. What are you doing? Where are you with that? Yeah, I mean, we when we um, bought the Antica Terra Vineyard, it was being um, farmed with napalm. I okay. <laughs> I've never I've never oh, seen God. anything like it. I mean, look, I'd only been in so many vineyards in my in my life, and they were all farmed pretty pretty beautifully, right? Because we were sourcing them from my from my old boss and mentor. And so when when, when I came to Antica Terra, there were just these bright like white tan stripes up the hill, and 
And I looked at this guy who was working on the vineyard and I said, what is that? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. I'm like, I really had, I hadn't seen a vineyard that where Roundup use looked like that. And so it, it had been, yeah, I mean, and that was, that was really prevalent when I, when I got to Oregon. Um, and so we took it to organic in a day and, um, and that's a, a pretty tricky thing to do because, you know, right. The ecosystem simply doesn't have any natural, um, resilience then it's, it's, um, sort of like being on chemotherapy for your whole life. And then all of a sudden you get, you get taken off. Um, and so we've been organic, you know, we have, we have only, we have only operated in organic ways since day one. I really, um, shy away from any naming conventions, right? I, I think biodynamics is an incredibly beautiful system, but it's only beautiful in the relationship between the human being and the piece of land. And so if you're only right, if you're, it's it's very much like the difference between religion and spirituality, and we're not supposed to talk about that, but right. Like if you're just going to look at a calendar and you say, Oh, the moon is full, I got to do this. And Oh, it's this day. I got to go do that. That it creates a level of remove. Very intense. Yep. You, you lack, it lacks intimacy. And so some things that we do come from biodynamics, some things come from permaculture, some things we learn from Bill Mollison, some things from Mimi Castile, some things we learn from Jessica Cordett. It is, it's only, you know, my, my biggest and most important job is to create a culture in this business that means something um, and also to just take care of this piece of land beautifully. And so um, I, you know, we do all of those things, and yet right. um, I could never put a, a single name on it. Well, you don't have to. And, you know, if you back up and talk about how you approach making wine and blending, I mean, this falls in. I mean, you know what you want to do. You have a respect, you know, for the land. And you don't have to put a, a, a name on it. All right. We have about... You have to discipline yourself now. We have about eight minutes left. <laughs> eight minutes left. I want to do okay. the wine list, and then I want okay. to taste the wine quickly. The wine list, I'm going to ask you five questions. I ask okay. all my guests the same five questions. I post these on our social media. Everyone's interested in you know your wine preferences. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? Beside your own wine. Well, I don't think you drink your own wines much, but... What are you drinking? What's in the fridge with the seasons changing? What are you enjoying now? I thought you meant what was actually in my cup right now. And I knew the answer. I was like, well, no, that, 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 that's, (laughs) you know, that's part of the answer, but give me that and go beyond that. Uh, Well, in my cup right now is uh, the same oolong that I drink every single day. Cups and cups and cups of it is called Lishan Winter Sprout. And I find it, it, I find it very enlivening. It's very broccoli and chlorophyll. I'm going to text you offline because I'm tea obsessed. I'm into poor and raw poor and greens and all that. So I I want to talk to you about that. All right. So tea, And then what is in my refrigerator right now is that I think I have Yeah, what is in my refrigerator right now that I just opened last night, I know this is going to seem like I knew this question was coming, but I didn't, is actually a bottle of of Valentini Cherosuolo. I was rooting around and I couldn't find anything that I actually wanted to drink um, exactly last night. And so I opened a bottle of of 14 14 Valentini Cherosuolo. That's a killer wine. And do you and I both agree we love champagne all the time? I love champagne all the time. All right, so you did a good job on the first question. Second question is the goofiest, but I'm curious to hear it. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Is there something, you know, obviously oh. you don't need it every night, every you, month. 
but something I have that, to say, you know, go ahead. I, I know you love to, to cook. Say, no, I'm, I, so we work with the, the most incredible chef at the winery and I know be, be really brief, but, um, and so when people come, he cooks and we serve our wine and he, um, had a pairing, which was our rosé, the angelical, with these mussels. I can't believe I'm about to say this word. Uh, these mussels in escabeche. It was the, so all of these, right, Aleppo. The mussels and, and, in an escabeche type Yeah, sauce. and so it's just every, every chili. It's not spicy, but it is intensely chili. So Aleppo and Sintesi pepper and pimenta splat and, and, and these Hungarian chili. It was the most profoundly moving pairing of two things I think I've ever had. All right, so you should be happy to know that nobody's ever given that wine and food pairing before. <laughs> Good for you. All right, this one, see if you can answer it. Not hard, but, you know, sometimes people struggle. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar? Is there something locally? Is there something in your travels where you walk in, the selection, the people, it's cool, it's comfortable? Um, does anything, does that ring a bell? There are so many. You know what? Uh, uh, this, this is going to sound so... I know I'm supposed to say like some hole-in-the-wall okay divey you... thing. You know what feels really amazing? A few years ago, I, a friend and I got to actually go cook at Maison de Colombier, which is in Bone. We, you know, we had been working, selling our wine, and we got to go to Burgundy to visit a few heroes. And, um, and we met Francois and Roland, who own Maison de Colombier. And I will say that sitting on one of those little couches and drinking off that list and, and being with them in that space uh, is probably my wine, my, my wine drinking, my wine drinking that, cup of the world. That is a very good answer. And that is a good prototype to how you answer that question. So we'll leave it at that. All right. Fourth question. Second to last favorite all time wine. Now, let me back up. When I structured this question, the question was sort of like, hey, Maggie, what was the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? Cool. I'd love to hear that one day. The question really morphed into what was that wine that was important to you, maybe life-changing, influential? What What's the wine that's important to you, you know, and a favorite? Well, it's a tricky one. I will say that the wine that I think about the most lately <laughs> and that has possessed me for a few years is actually the, the Sancerre of Edmund Baton. And Wait, so this Sancerre is not Sancerre from where? So uh, V-A-T-A-N, um, Baton. Okay. And, and not because I, I make Sauvignon Blanc or not. It's, it wasn't something that I drank early when I was a, a waitress. I think I'm supposed to say server. When I worked in a restaurant, it was the thing that cracked everything open. It wasn't that. It's a it's a wine that really stumps me. I, I don't understand how you make something that feels like that. Um, and so I... I that, That's good. I mean, there's... There's a uniqueness and something that captivated you that has intrigued you. Like no Yeah, other I mean, wine. I'm, pos I'm possessed by it. I really, I keep I, going I, back to that wine from any vintage because it feels unlike anything else made from that variety. Any that's a great answer. All right, here's the last mm -hmm. question. This may be a little hard, but help me with it. Um, your wines are found in Michelin-starred restaurants. Basically, you could push it all out through a mailing list. Um, uh, they are incredible wines and they're very fairly priced. But when you 
want to recommend or drink wines, like my kids are in their 20s, for 15, 20 bucks because they don't want to buy crappy supermarket wine and they can't afford it. What do you think are good value wines? What's a good red value wine? What's a good white? And here's a tip off. Like Muscadet is a terrific wine for cheap. What do you, you know, what would you, how would you... I think what's so exciting these days is that we, we used to have to say, okay, Muscadet or Beaujolais, right? Like there, right. there are these great Neither things are that cheap really anymore. reliable. And yet I think that, you know, more recently it is, there is an, expl- an explosion of people doing incredible work all over the globe with varieties that we run. You can't go out and say, you know, what you should be looking for is Trexadora, Right. But yet there are producers um, in all different places who are making things that are outside of the, the Muscadet and, and Beaujolais that, um, you know, sort of reliable, reliable houses that we that we know we can go to that are incredibly affordable and, and really, really exciting. And so things... I, I agree. I, I agree. Anything specific or you don't have to get into it? Like, can, can you see me trying to scan price tags? <laughs> like, how much don't don't answer that. that. I I think the idea is that now more than ever, there are great winemakers making some great wines, you know, at some terrific prices. Um, That's what I meant I think, to say, Sam. And I think people, <laughs> I always tell people, you go into a winery, talk to winemakers. You go into a restaurant, talk to the Psalms. You go to retailers, talk to them, tell them what you want to spend, and they go out of their way to find these guys, and that's how you come across them. That All right, Maggie, exactly we got to wrap up, but you went through the paint to send me wine. I have in front of me a 2014, um, which is a treat. I think I mispronounced it. And. Antica Nobody Thera. knows how to pronounce it. I didn't Antith- know how to pronounce it. It's, it's, well, I it's heard you Auntie say it differently. Antikythera, that was it. So I have the 2014 Antikythera, which is your estate vineyard. Tell me a little about this wine and this vintage. Yeah, I mean, 2014 was kind of a cakewalk. I think, uh, you know, it is always my nature when somebody asks me to send wine to send cakewalk an 11 as far or as the year. Yeah, it was nothing forced our hand. It was this incredibly okay. long season where there was this, you know, it was cool through the growing season, but then there was this incredible Indian summer. So we let to get, you know, get things, let things hang. And, um, you know, it's one of those vintages where if you if you didn't make a good wine, I, th- I think you weren't paying attention. And yet it's one of those vintages where I think, um, you know, Antikythera, sort of that, that vineyard does its best work because um, there is... Because the window of ripening was open for so long, and, and Antiquitaire is a very weird place to try to call a pick because the fruit doesn't express itself in the same way, we got to pick across this whole range, right? It's, it's just like any other fruit, just if you were going to pick a strawberry, there's sort of the first moment it starts to taste good, and then it moves towards resolve, and then it becomes sweeter, and then starts to starts to fall out of resolution again. And in 2014, because the season was so long, we just had... Um, this, the window stayed open for a long time. And so we got to pick across a much broader range of expression just from that single place than in most years. And so what I found in that one, you know, 2014, the most barrels from the Antigua Terra vineyard found their way into that bottle. And because of it, um, there are just more parts touching it. I think that that wine carries a more symphonic quality um, than, than some of the wines we've made from the same site. So I usually, 
I usually drink along with my guest and, you know, we evaluate it, but I'm going to throw everything out and you tell me if I'm right. The color is, you know, a very deep, kind of a deep red, red to darker. The nose to me is, it's a, when I opened it, the room filled up. It's very perfumed. I pick up, you know, blue fruits as much as red fruits. There is a nice little spiciness to it that, you know, is a nice component, not too strong, not too weak. I think the mouthfeel for a Pinot is very, you know, it's, how do I say it without, I don't, you it's, my it, feelings. it's, 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 you know, medium to full to me. It, it feels beautiful yeah, on the mouth. It's massive. Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, let's, a glycerin quality. Let's be, let's be quality, honest, it's massive. But moving to the palate, I mean, it's juicy. I mean, I get some nice acidity, which I think, you know, would make it go with food. There's the tannins are no issue to me. Um, and there's a floral component, you know, that I love from the nose to the palate. Um, that's what I picked up. Is that a I fair evaluation? How could it not be fair? That's exactly what you what you felt in your body. But but are those things that you've come across? But I think that is. I think that's. Ex- I think that's exactly right. I okay. Think that's a really, it's a really nice way to talk about. I that. hate to ask this question, but what type of foods do we pair with a wine like this? Oh, I mean, dry aged steak, right? Like the like mm. the most expensive waggy you can find, and and then don't really cook it, right? I mean, I think the thing that we forget about people Pinot Noir is how right. well it people can don't do think Pinot ways. Noir with a big you know, juicy steak. I totally agree with that. Based on my descriptors in this type of wine, I actually may um, put this in the fridge and throw a steak on tomorrow. All right, so that's the 2014 Pinot Noir from Maggie's Estate Vineyard called Anne. You did it. Uh, Antikythera. Antikythera. All right, Maggie. We've been going over an hour. We got to wrap up the show. Let me do a quick wrap up and then I want to get some info from you. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the com. That's Sam at the com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. You can follow us on Facebook at the Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. Yes, we know that's confusing, so you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. As I mentioned, I will post Maggie's wine list. I will also post a little more info on our weekly wine sip, the 2014, um, on our social media sites. Uh, Maggie, for some reason, I don't think you need a ton of help selling your wines but i'm not going to make any assumptions but if people want to find out more about antica terra you know on social media or on the internet where should we go yeah you just, and also you can just reach out anytime i mean i will i will give you my email address so if you're looking for the wine and you can't find it let us help um you know i am mh at antiquaterra.com the website is antiquaterra.com um, we are on Instagram at, and it's just Antica underscore. No, I, yeah, Antica underscore Tara. I think. Tara, yeah. Um, and we would love to just just hit us up anytime, whether we have wine to sell or not. We, intimacy matters and connection matters, so we would love to hear from you. Listen, I I have to be honest. You know, I've been doing the, I've been a collector for a long time. I've been doing the show for four years. 
I kind of stumbled on your wines three, four years ago and didn't do anything about it. And then just said, let me go online and, you know, get on the mailing list. And a few years ago I got on and I started ordering, you know, some bottles here and there. So I assume that can happen at some point with other people if they're interested. So we certainly move people do off that. the waiting list every every year. It's not if they're we dormant. Are, we are not yeah. my old awesome mentor. The list is is not that long. It, we are we are full, and it is a waiting list. But it's we'll we'll, we'll get right. you in. I love hearing that, and it's at restaurants. All right, Maggie. I want to thank you from the beginning for agreeing to come on the show and responding so quickly. You're just one of those people that is just so <laughs> responsive. I love that about you. Um, I want to thank our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben-Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.